Well, it's great to be back with, here at Cal- back with you here again at Calvary. Since I was last in this pulpit, my family made the drive that you call the national championship drive. We call the drive to Poppy and Patty's house. And it was a great time for us, uh, putting some 2,800 miles on my car, driving all the way through Oklahoma into Texas, uh, making a trip to the beach, and then back and back and back. So we are very delighted to be back, to be home, to be kind of re-engaging our church family and getting into it. But we really appreciate your praying for us. We had a, a great, great time away. One of my great joys I had in leaving was knowing that Lenny and Scott, two men who serve here as elders, would be filling the pulpit. And if you missed it, I would recommend, in fact, I'd highly recommend you pick up either of those podcasts, as Lenny did a great job summing up our work in Acts, calling us to be the light of the world after Matthew 5, helping us to have a greater vision that God uses people, not the church, that often we want to lean on the church to do things And yet it's people that accomplish many of those tasks. And so God uses people. And so to be reminded that you are the light of the world, that the Holy Spirit is in you and working in you and using you, uh, and and we trust that. And then Scott took on a challenging passage in Acts 5, and actually we'll finish Acts 5 in a couple of weeks, and taking us and challenging us with the seriousness of sin. Uh, Both of those guys did a great job handling the Word of God and Uh, Whether or not you know this or not, we have an absolutely fantastic group of elders in this church, and I've been very, very, very encouraged by that. It's been fun to watch them use their gifts, as we've seen in the book of Acts, people using their gifts and trusting in the power of the Holy Spirit. So thanks again, guys, for stepping out to do that. Uh, It's a great example for us out of Acts uh, and encouraging to me. So this morning, I'll be opening up the sixth chapter of the book of Acts. So as you turn there, I want to remind you of a couple of things. The book of Acts was written by Luke, a Gentile doctor who ministered with Paul. In fact, that's an uber important fact to the message of the gospel of Luke and of Acts. Because Luke records for us how the gospel spreads from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. He records for us how the church was started, how it was organized, And that's part of what we're going to look at this morning, how the church is organized. And he records for us how the gospel was carried forward and how the church grew, not on the backs of professionals, but by everyday people who were filled with the Holy Spirit. Several times we've come back to Acts 4.13, which records the observation by the Pharisees that these were uneducated common men who by the power of the Holy Spirit testified to the resurrection of Jesus. So let's take a quick poll. Raise your hand if you've ever been to seminary. Now that's not most of you, is it? For the sake of it, how many of you are Levites with fathers who are in active ministry? Levi Lelm could be the closest we might get in being a Levite. But you get the point, right? There's some relatability as you step into this, that these disciples were common people. They were everyday people with everyday jobs, didn't have to go to seminary, didn't have to get enormous amounts of training. In fact, that's the story of Luke. 
Luke's a Gentile, comes to faith under the ministry of Paul, just like you heard about Jesus from whoever told you about Jesus. And Luke had a normal job. He was a doctor. He probably had a practice. And somewhere in there, he takes on missionary work and starts traveling with Paul and attending to Paul's medical needs. There's a relatability here in the book of Acts when we see people, normal people, trusting in the Holy Spirit and going forth. Acts 1.8 testifies to us, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And this verse is not just an outline of the book of Acts, though it certainly does serve as that. It's the opportunity to watch the gospel spread from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. We'll see that when we move towards Acts 8 and then to the ends of the earth, which in that day was considered to be Rome. But this is also the means of the gospel. That it's people who've received the Holy Spirit, who had received power, testifying to who Jesus was and watching the Spirit bring thousands upon thousands to understand that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, that he was the Redeemer, and that only through him could we be saved by our sins. Two weeks ago, my family was in Dallas. And I said to Pam, so man, we can go to church with your parents like we normally do. But I have a different idea. I said, I want to take us to a different church. She said, what? I said, I think we should go to Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship. Now, if you're not familiar with Dallas, you need to know Oak Cliff is in the middle of the hood. Uh, it is where Dr. Tony Evans' church is placed, Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship. Dr. Evans in the early 80s planted a church there. It's absolutely incredible work. But it is by far and primarily an African-American church. I felt like my kids needed to be exposed to that, to see people loving Jesus who looked differently than we do. We tend to be a pretty monolithic community, correct? So I wanted my kids to see something else. So afterwards, we went out to lunch, and I asked my kids, hey, what was the same and what was different? Like, what did you notice? And it was fascinating listening to the opinions of an eight, six, and four-year-old. My eight-year-old said, Dad, they just seemed much more excited about Jesus than we are. Take that as an exhortation. Be more excited about Jesus. I, we laughed. Pierce looked at me and he goes, Dad, that old guy is dancing in the aisle. <laughs> it might be edifying to my son if some old guys danced in the aisle because they were excited about Jesus. I, I, and that's real. That's That's real. It was funny talking to my six and four-year-old, asking them, what was the same? What was different? Do you know race didn't occur to my kids at all? My, my eight-year-old picked up on it. My six and four-year-old was like, Dad, they dressed up more. Dad, they, they sang songs. They clap, they clap better. I'm like, yes, they do. <laughs> yeah, we can't help that. That's ethnic. <laughs> but it was an awesome opportunity watching my kids see people excited and passionate about Jesus and watching testimonies of the Holy Spirit working and utterly renewing a community as this church has been there for 40 years. It's the hope of 
Calvary. We've been here for 134 and we've got years upon years ahead of us to build and renew this community, to have the people around us on our mind, to have our neighbors before us, both internationals and Americans, to see that the area around us gets renewed. So much of the message of Acts. So as we walk into chapter 6, I commented that Scott's going to be finishing chapter 5 in two weeks. So let me just give you a summary of it. So when Scott gets to it, you go, oh yeah. And so if we touch on something here, um, we won't miss it. But after Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5, 1 through 7, you'll remember that story. Ananias comes in, says, hey, we brought the money from the sale but didn't bring all the money, wanted to lie, wanted to deceive the church, wanted to steal glory from God. You see this early example where Barnabas had placed a gift. They saw that Barnabas received well. You see his name change from Joseph to Barnabas in that process. He's the son of encouragement. They must have looked at that and said, hey, I want some of that. I want a cool church nickname. So they step into it and they give a portion Let's be clear about that. According to the text, they may have given it an enormous sum of money. But it was the lying that was the problem. Scott handled that well. And Luke gives us the summary then of the local church following that story. Noting that even sin entering into the church did not stop the church from growing. It didn't stop people from coming to know the Lord and people being healed. And then in verse 17 you find the high priest and the entire Sanhedrin filled with jealousy. So again, they have all of the disciples this time, all 12, arrested and put them in jail. And they didn't even last a single night. Because the angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and set them free, immediately calling them to go back to the temple and to resume preaching the words of life, according to the text. I want you to see that, that God is so passionate about his word going forward that he puts a vigor in his people through the spirit that they would be so bent on, I gotta tell people about Jesus, I gotta tell people about Jesus, I gotta tell people about Jesus. That while these guys are in jail, the spirit of God goes, let's get them out of jail so they can tell people about Jesus. Like, like that's real. God wanted them to continue what they were about, so he plucked them out of jail. I find so many Christians wanting to look at passages like this and like, well, I went to jail once. God didn't get me out. I don't think you were in jail for preaching the gospel. And I don't think God had it on his heart to get you back out preaching. You're probably in jail for doing something stupid. In which case, God put you in jail to teach you a lesson. Amen? Amen? skipping all sorts of examples and illustrations. We'll have that conversation another day. These guys are pulled out of jail by the Spirit and resume preaching, and the Sanhedrin arrests them again. Verses 40 through 42 records what happens next. Not trying to steal any of Scott's thunder, but this is what it says. And when they called in the apostles, they beat them, and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council. Listen to this. Highlight this in your Bibles. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer 
dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. So what we find in the book of Acts coming through this is that the normal, common, uneducated, Holy Spirit-filled people testified in the temple, going from door to door, wanting everyone to know that Jesus is the Christ. And nothing would stop them. Not strong words, not prison, not physical abuse. Against all opposition and persecution, they continued to testify. Kind of makes me a pansy, doesn't it? The number of times that I back down just because I'm uncomfortable. The number of times I start a conversation and then just feel like, I don't know, I don't know if I want to change our relationship. Because if I introduce Jesus, then all of a sudden it gets weird. It's true, right? That happens to all of us. Thank you. I'd like to know it's not just me. It happens to all of us, right? And yet these guys were so unashamedly passionate about the gospel going forward that they were unstoppable. And so this morning as we open chapter 6, we have a very fitting passage for an annual meeting Sunday. Because as the church experienced growth and as it experienced persecution which by the way continued the growth of the church you want to study the book of acts you will find immediately that the best conditions for the church are harsh ones i've heard people say this and this is not intended to be a huge political statement but i vote for the candidates who make the church who make the church easily or more possibly grow that's going to flip our politics aside when we understand theology. The church tends to grow the best when we're persecuted. When this building will blow up when they start beating us. When it's easy and simple, we don't. It's just, it's the history and nature of the church. Persecution picked up. The church started growing and started having some issues. And in Acts 6, we find its first internal struggles, the Two things that happen to churches is external pressures and internal pressures. And here we find the first internal pressure in verse 1. It says, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were, not, were being neglected in the daily distribution. And you can see this happening. The church gets bigger, it gets bigger, it gets bigger, it gets bigger. Probably into the five digits at this point. Say you don't like mega churches, heaven won't be pleasant. Tens of thousands of people, we stopped counting when we got to about 5,000 men in the church, not counting women and children, probably a number of around 12, and that was three or four chapters ago when numbers and numbers and numbers and numbers and keep getting added, and people keep coming to know the Lord, doesn't seem to challenge any of their faith. As people keep coming to see that Jesus is the Lord, and more and more of them are being recognized as disciples. Create some vocabulary challenges as you move through, because the disciples isn't the twelve. We often think that. In fact, even Jesus referred to the disciples as a, a group of 70 at one point. But the disciples keep increasing in number. And these are all good things 
I want to remind you in Acts 4, 32 through 34 that the early church in Acts 4 was described as the full number of those who believed and were of one heart and soul. And yet here the church experiences conflict. Why? Because the more people come in, the more different people will come in. And I'll say that again, and I'll say it differently this time. The more a church starts engaging and reaching the world, the more different people will come in. And that is a good thing. We often say here that the reality of the church ought to be that somebody driving by Village Green Boulevard ought to look out and see it. 11.30 or 12 or 12.15 and see a diverse people walking out of our building going, how do all those people get along? The answer ought to be Jesus. Because if it's all Vikings fans, we've got a problem. If it's all, hey, they're all middle class white people, we got a problem. The church should always be diverse. It's a sign of God's presence. It's a sign of his working. It's a sign that he can save everyone. So the church, by definition, ought to be able to handle diversity, and yet sometimes it causes rubs. It causes tensions. And we see that here, that as the church grows and matures the body, the people have to grow up. I said that like small, because we have to grow up. And we have to take on those tensions. And we have to take on those challenges. And what happens here in this passage, you see the early church responding to a need. Because at this point, you see a picture. That the early church had a system of every single day providing food to widows. Now there's a definition of a widow in the, the church but that every day they provided them food. And as the church grew, certainly the number of widows would grow. And so this conflict arises. Let's take another quick poll. Who here thinks the Hebrews got together and decided to intentionally leave out the Hellenists? Nope. Probably not what happened. So the conflict here is not one of sinful omission. I can actually tell you that's true. As if they decided to leave someone out. No, this is a conflict brought on by the challenges of diversity and growth. A conflict that needed to be addressed. And it was a conflict that brought an opportunity. So churches, pause here for a moment. And consider the church. Our church. The one that sits at 2801 Village Green Boulevard. Are we going to have conflict? Are we going to have conflict? Thank you. So let's not be like the Hellenists who complain about it. Who complain about fair treatment. Let me put it this way. If you see something that you think should be happening at the church, should you talk to everyone else about it? Probably not. If you have a question, see Paula. Should you leave the church? No. 
What you see here is a people saying, hey, this should be happening. It's not happening. They start complaining about it. Now, whether that complaint was registered amongst everyone or just went to the leaders, you don't really know. But you see a tension, right? And people don't know how to resolve tensions. So all the time you see either of those two examples happening. Well, I don't know why this happened. Uh, I don't know why. And so people start talking to each other and, and start making up reasons why. And there's not an understanding. And I'm sure that happened in this church. In the early church. Rather than finding out what's actually going on. I'll give you this as an example of my last church in Memphis. We had two to three college students who left our church. By the way, they never came to talk to me about it. They left because they never felt like our church took the needs of homeless people seriously. Now, I'll be honest with you. We probably didn't. So I'm telling you from the front, we're guilty. But you know what? If Christ gifts the body, and some of those gifts are spiritual gifts, they're talents, their passions. By the way, the New Testament affirms that, that everyone here has gifts. They have abilities. They have passions. They have talents. And if you're using them, the body works healthily. And if you are not, we can't. Which is to say this. If you're an active participant of Calvary, you show up regularly and are serving in no capacity, we are never going to be the church we could be. Because we're not going to function as a healthy body. Think of it this way. I want some of you to sign up next year to run like a Fargo half marathon and not use your legs. Just tell me how that goes. And if you want to just pick a muscle, like try not to use a foot. Or your ankle. See how that goes. You won't get very far and that is the exact very picture given to us in 1 Corinthians of the body of Christ moving. That we would all be involved, engaged, using our gifts. And I often thought that maybe the Lord was using those three guys to point out our shortcoming. That he was going to use them to raise up a ministry that could have helped us in this area that we were weak but instead they decided to go to a different church to be a part of a ministry that was already happening to create a strength or there already was a strength rather than responding to a need that needed to happen. Calvary, we don't do everything awesome. We never will. And there are going to be times when you and your heart, God puts something on you and says, hey, we need to do this. And you know what we should do? Do that. We need to be responsive to our body. Responsive to the needs of the community. Responsive to your gifts. So that we are serving. The challenge here is that the Hellenist widows were not getting food. So the Hellenists brought the opportunity to the church. And watch what happens. Verse 2. By the way, if I didn't already explain this, because I don't think I did, I think I skipped this part in my notes. If you want to know what a Hellenist is, a Hellenist is a Greek-speaking Jew, probably in Samaria, people who are more accustomed to Greek culture than to Jewish culture, still Jewish, but Greek-speaking, versus the Hebrews, who are Hebrew-speaking Jewish people. All of these people, assumably, in the church have accepted Christ, 
But that's the distinction. So the 12, verse 2, summon the full number of the disciples. No idea how many people that was in that meeting. We'll call that their annual meeting. And said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Basically, the 12 here decide that that they are not enough to meet the needs of the body. That they couldn't continue to take on the ministries of preaching and praying and serve the widows. It's an important distinction for us to realize. Because often churches give up the ministry of preaching, of outreach, of praying in order to do lots of other things. And here that was the primary thing. It's primary in the early church. And so what did they do? Verse 3. The twelve, realizing they couldn't handle all of the needs. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will continue to devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. What you find if you follow the Bible all the way through is that the church in response to a need, here in Acts 6, institutes what would then become the office of a deacon. We call them trustees. I'd much rather us call them deacons. We call them trustees. We'll tackle that another day. Luke regards, here records, that the twelve encourage the body to pick out seven men, and he gives them these qualifications. They must have a good reputation. They must be full of the Spirit, which means that they're in harmony with the Holy Spirit. They're working through the Holy Spirit. They're engaging people. They're loving people. And they must be wise. Now, let's carefully note there aren't talents given here. It's not he must be an accountant. He must be wealthy. He must have nine kids. There are no external talents given, only internal characteristics that are given here. It says, whom we will appoint to this duty. He gives these qualifications, and they are then to serve. The Greek verb used here is the same root word for the noun deacon. In fact, Paul will expand upon this in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1 instructing the church further on selecting and qualifying those who are both called to be deacons and elders. So here in Acts 6, they create the office of deacons. Along the lines that deacons were called to be servants, to help meet the physical needs of the people, and in so doing, that would free up the 12, who by this way at this point are functioning as elders, to continue on in the ministry of the word and prayer. Now, several times as we've walked through the book of Acts, we've stopped intentionally to show you how the early church was formed. And then to show you how Calvary is structured to help give you an idea and a concept that we didn't make this stuff up. It wasn't like we just sat around and thought, well, you know, businesses have boards. We should get one. Organizations seem to have boards. We should do that. I've told you many times I didn't grow up in a a believing Christian family. I wasn't exposed to a a greater church. So when I came in, you started looking around and go, what in the world? What's that? 
have a friend who visits me from time to time and comes into our church and he goes, what's an elder? And why do people say that they're an elder? Like, what is that? And so here we look in the book of Acts to see that these, this kind of church organization is not something we made up, but actually derives from Scripture that God, in his wisdom, in the church, built organizational structure so that in this case, the spiritual needs of the people would be met and the physical needs of the people would be met. And so... You find, just as we preach the word and gather around tables, which we discussed in Acts 2, we also function with elders who are called to shepherd the people and to preach and pray. And we have deacons, which we call trustees, we'll take that on later, who function as servants to meet the physical needs of the church. And we've talked several times as we've walked through Acts about our fellowship fund and about happen and how we use that to help families that are struggling. It's a perfect example of a ministry of the trustees. But let's get back to the text. Verse 5. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. Now that's kind of crazy. You got like 20,000 people and they're like, yeah, we're all in. That's unity at work. Why? Because a challenge rose and they didn't go, "Mm, hey, we should start another church. Ooh, we should move to Antioch. The church took on an issue and resolved it and, and made mo- movement, made motion. They all were pleased, the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicacor, and Timon, and Parmenaeus, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Seven men were chosen to serve, to assist the twelve in ministering the people. And we're introduced then to two guys who will show back up in the book of Acts. Stephen, who we'll see in a couple of weeks, and Philip, who is one of my favorite stories in Acts. Against seven non-professional guys who took on leadership and service in the church. Seven guys called by their Greek names, meaning they had probably Hellenist backgrounds. God continues to call the unlikely in to service, and we pay particular attention to Nicholas, who is a proselyte from Antioch. To be a proselyte means that he was a Gentile by birth, who had come to Judaism seeking God and then had come to Christ for salvation. You couldn't find a more unlikely candidate. You see diversity even in the church that a Syrian is one of our early church fathers. So these men were chosen and then affirmed by the congregation by the laying on of hands. And the word of God continued to increase, verse 7, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of priests became obedient to the faith. The church continued to grow, and even a great number of priests, and that's an astounding statement, come to know Jesus. So as we come to Acts 6, there's two things you should note. One, there is a process. How does a church deal with conflict? Because as aforementioned, you voted. We do. We will. It's before us. When you have conflict, do you talk amongst it with each other, or do you go to church leadership? 
answer is go to church leadership. And we'll help resolve that for you. If you've got a conflict, that's why we've got elders. Sometimes that's a conflict between you, and we've had elders step into that. If you've got a conflict with me, that's fine. We're all human, right? You can go to an elder and say, hey, man, Pastor Ben's a punk. And after agreeing with you, they'll gladly hear out your story. That's how the church is called to operate. Because God recognizes we're a group of humans who are sinful by nature, functioning together for a spiritual cause, that we would reach the people. So God wholly organized us. So be edified by the reality that you're in a church that looks at the scriptures and says, how do we organize? Well, what's the Bible say we should do? We should have elders and deacons. Cool, we'll do that. And so we live and operate in a place that, and in a church that follows God's word. Which is to say, at 11 o'clock when we have an annual meeting, and you'll be tempted to think, is this an unholy, is this just a business meeting? Recognize that you have the opportunity then to affirm, just like in Acts 6, some guys who will join our trustee board. That we ought to lay hands on at some point and say, we affirm these men in their calling to the physical needs of our body. That we recognize that our electric bill is not just a utility, but it's a means for the gospel to go forward. Somebody has to look at that. That toilets that break aren't just a plumbing problem, but a a means for the gospel to go out. And so somebody takes care of that. They serve in that capacity so that the gospel can go forward. And one of the reasons they do that is because it then frees the elders up to the spiritual needs of the church, to preaching, to praying, to shepherding God's people. So that as you have a need, and you call the church and say, Pastor Ben, can I talk to you for a minute? I can say yes and not, you know, there's a toilet that needs fixed. And please know how utterly thankful I am for our trustees when those things happen, because I know many a pastor that vacuum on Sundays. And I'm so thankful that's not in my job description. So remember, as we step into our annual meeting, that we're creating a culture in our church of being obedient to God's word and to lifting up people into leadership so that we can continue the mission that God gave us to preach, to pray, and to call the community around us to him, that it might all look like him, that it might be transformed, and that the mission of Jesus Christ would go out. Let me pray for us. Father, as we look in Acts 6, we're reminded, Father, that this institution, the church, is yours. That the idea of leadership in the church was yours too. Father, that you called the church to appoint elders. We see that clearly in 1 Timothy. Father, you called the church to appoint deacons. We see that starting in Acts 6. We see it again in 1 Timothy. Father, even how we organize is a function Father, of what you've called us to do, to keep us on mission so that physical things could be taken care of so that they'd never be more important than the spiritual ones. Father, that as a church, we would take on the equipping of God's people to send them out to love their community, to love their neighbors, 
and to tell people about Jesus. Father, I thank you for our church and for all of these here. Father, I pray that you'd continue to give us a great understanding of your Holy Spirit and of his work, that we'd continue to trust in him. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.